0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Priyamvada Natarajan. She is professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University. I spoke with her on November 30, 2005, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was at Yale Broadcast and Media Center in New Haven, Connecticut. This interview was included in our online project, Einstein and the Mind of God, Find that at onbeing.org. Well, um, I think Colleen has told you, this is just a little bit of an adventure this morning. I actually got your name from the people at the Museum of Natural History in New York.
1: Ah, I don't know if you had
0: anything to do with them, but I'm moderating a panel discussion there on science and religion in March. And um, they, somehow, we were talking about (laughs) scientists, and they said that your name had come up as a young bright articulate scientist. Oh, <laughs> So <let's see. laughs> here we are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um and I don't really know if you if you've thought much about Einstein, but I'll find out in a moment. M- right. <laughs> Mitch is um Mitch is adjusting my headphones. Are we okay? I just need to hear Okay. A bit. He needs to hear you. Would you talk about something okay. something mundane like what you
1: had for breakfast? <laughs> what I had for breakfast uh-huh. was a strong cappuccino and um some cereal. <laughs> okay.
0: um, are you a, are you at a studio at Yale?
1: Yeah, okay. I'm at a studio in a building at Yale. All right. Actually, I don't live far from here. Okay. Where do you live? I actually live in a a Yale College, Saybrook College, oh, where they have right. faculty mm-hmm. apartments, and I live in one of them.
0: All right. I went to the Divinity School in New Haven. Oh, you so did. All yeah. oh,
1: right. I yeah. see. <laughs> oh, I realize. Oh, so you have a connection with Yale. I do. Yeah. Uh, I know all those streets. That's right. <laughs> Actually, uh, I was just telling um, the recording person here mm-hmm. that although I live like less than a block from here, I'd never notice that you have to get to this basement. There's only one way to get in. You can get to the first floor of the building <laughs> and get stairs to go down. There are no stairs. <laughs> That's Yale <laughs> so, for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Restricted access, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mitch, Did you make a quick phone call? Right. He is making a quick phone call. I sure. S- I suspect to um, straighten out the the audio. The hmm. audio. I don't know what he's hearing. I see him making faces behind the glass. I don't. I don't want to get into anything substantive yet because I'm afraid sure. we'll, we wouldn't record it, and then I'd be <coughs> Sure. Sorry. So what are you doing now? Okay. Well, well we're doing. We have some funding. Um, this is a weekly national. It's a public radio program. We're actually on WNPR in Hartford at 7 o'clock Sunday mornings, this program. Oh, 7 a.m. Yeah, oh, okay. 7 a.m. Um, I think there are a couple of public radio uh, stations you pick up in New Haven, but th- we right. do, you know, you can hear this in New Haven. Um, it's it's not a program about religion, but um, but looking at important subjects in our common life and um and asking religious and spiritual and ethical questions of those, or bringing in intelligent, illuminating pers- religious perspectives on them. Right. But it's a real wide range of people talking and um, a- and trying to have different kinds of conversations and connotations around. We're going to switch over microphones.
1: Hold on. Okay. I it sounded really interesting.
0: Okay. Are you moving now? They're switching microphones. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hello. you back. Yeah. Okay. Mitch are, Mitch, are you happy? Oh, now I'm hearing a big echo. Oh,
1: now I'm hearing an echo too. Of, mm-hmm. of yeah, that's voice. me here in the control room. Okay. Uh, is Mitch okay with this? Uh, let me just hear just for a second. Okay. Well, that sounds great.
0: <coughs> Does it sound great? Very good. Okay. Good. okay.
1: In minus the echo. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think um, I'm not hearing the echo. So can we begin?
1: Just hear hers a little bit more.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. One more thing. Tell me what you had for dinner last night.
1: Oh, um, dinner last night. I had Thai food. <laughs> I <laughs> I live not far from the takeaway Bangkok Gardens. You- I'm sorry. I'm just going to interrupt just for a second. Um, Frank, can I just get a little bit more level out of her? Uh, and uh, Priya, if you could keep speaking. Okay. Uh, was I speaking too softly? No, no, I just think the microphone difference might
0: uh, uh, might have changed the uh, the output that I'm getting. Oh,
1: okay.
0: Does, um, can Frank hear you? Okay.
1: Okay, and Priya, can you just tell me what else you had for dinner? <laughs> 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 I didn't eat very much. Maybe I'll tell you something about what I was watching last night on TV. Okay, tell <laughs> me that. about DVD. So I... I recently discovered this series called
0: 24. Oh, yes. I'm it's so good, I'm addicted it? to
1: it. It is. And it's <laughs> lame, too. I mean, I get annoyed I by it, too. I know. Because it's so stereotypical and all of that. But I, I still know. am hooked. I can't <laughs> stop watching it. I know. I've watched. what? what? Now, aren't they rerunning one? Is it yeah, the first no, season? No, I, I didn't see the first season yet. The oh, you're watching it on se- DVD? You're oh, watching? yeah, yeah. Oh, oh okay. Oh my God, it's impossible! Yeah. Well. So here I was last night trying to finish my book by Gerhard Sonnet on uh, Einstein and culture, <laughs> and I just couldn't stop watching it. I, I understand. <laughs> so. I truly do. That's
0: <laughs> one of and my I just, favorites.
1: <laughs> I only recently discovered it over mm-hmm. Thanksgiving break. So well, it's completely gripping, and you get involved <laughs> in the story. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I, I'm, I'm a real pacifist at heart, and I'm sort of I know, really I know, at, I know. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I'm just so annoyed <laughs> that, gosh, I can sit here and watch all these people being killed and not empathize. You know, yeah. like I want the plot to move on. I know.
0: Well, I think it's uh, good like, television. I think it's good storytelling <laughs> or something. Let's call it art. It's
1: It's one of those things that I often have a rant about, which is I I Mm -hmm. like movies a lot, but I really hated uh, this whole genre by Tarantino and others where they're trying to make you immune to violence. And here I am, like, you know, watching this thing, (laughs) which is doing exactly (laughs) the same thing. (laughs) Well, I understand. We're kindred spirits in that. (laughs) 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 Well,
0: tell me, um, where did you grow Mm -hmm. up? Did you grow up in this country?
1: No, actually, I grew up in India. Mm -hmm. I went to high school in India. Okay. And then I came to this country for my undergraduate studies.
0: All right. And, you know, I, I've, I've asked this question of Freeman Dyson, who was alive in, who, in Einstein's lifetime, and, and um, <laughs> Paul Davies, who's also uh, several generations older than you. And, you know, I just wonder, um, well, what when were you born? Would you tell me that? What year? Yeah, sure. Um, I was born in
1: 1972.
0: Okay. So, you know, it, do you remember um, when you first he- heard about this figure, Albert Einstein? I and mean, would you say that Einstein is an influence for you, for a, gen- a scientist Have your generation?
1: Well I mean I think he his imagery I was aware of from when I was quite young because of the persona you know his hair right and that (laughs) image of him was something that you know I saw in a poster in my high school. Hmm. In Uh, India? Yes um, I went to a very very high excellent high school in India Uh called Delhi Public School which um And we had fantastic science teachers and mathematics teachers Mm -hmm. and we had this poster um in our library you know god doesn't play dice i think it was that one (laughs) with uh, einstein's uh, image on it so it was inescapable at that time obviously you know i was learning special relativity in school but you know i wasn't aware of general relativity or you know i i wasn't really kind of aware of how big a leap his work was because i was just Learning it as part of the curriculum, mm-hmm. I wasn't really seeing it you know set in the context of you know what people knew before Einstein and what a huge paradigm shift his work was. That came much later during my undergraduate studies. when I started um, I took a course in general relativity, and I took that in my junior year. It was a graduate course, and I absolutely loved it. And mm-hmm. that's when I realized that. Oh my God! There was something incredible that he was able to um, have insight on that no one else had, and it also because I was interested in cosmology, which is where much of this work is applied. Right. You know, I could see that it was such a fundamental contribution.
0: Well, uh, n- tell me, you know, when you say you loved it, you loved general relativity. I mean, what you, you <laughs> know, describe that for me. What was it that captivated you?
1: well it was the fact that you could learn a few mathematical rules of manipulation and manipulate equations but then arrive at very very f- in sort of important phys- things that gave you physical insight mm about, for example, the metric and how photons travel in this metric and how space-time is actually bent, Mm -hmm. it's curved, and what that really means. So, you know, you know these words when you read about it in popular science, which I had by that time, but till you learn the rules of manipulating sort of the indices in general relativity and you know what a tensor is and how you write a metric out as a tensor, you don't really understand how, you know, how do you jump from those words to actually understanding Mm -hmm. what it really means? So I don't know, for me it was, um, mathematics is very empowering (laughs) because it's such Mm. a tool, it's a Mm. fantastic tool that gives you, um, that gives mere mortals like me insight because it allows you to look at an equation, simplify it, play with it, and then see what the meanings are in terms of the, Physics and applicability and so on, you know um
0: physicists i'm I'm learning um like Einstein himself um uh, think of mathematical equations and use use words like elegant and beautiful when they right. think of mathematical <laughs> yeah. equations and i I hear that in your voice even even though you're not using those adjectives right now,
1: yeah
0: I think that's a little bit
1: mysterious uh to outsiders. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, yeah I guess it's uh, I guess we mean. Um, I guess the word beauty and elegance, the, the elegance is because of, I think, the way in which you, when you unravel a mathematical equation, you manipulate it. And what I mean by manipulating it is you simplify it. You know how to derive it. You know how to arrive at it, at a given equation. Once you are capable of doing that, then you see, you know, it's, it's sort of like a s- string that kind of unrolls and it gives you a lot more than you thought that was in that, encapsulated in that. And then you realize, given the, the insights that you get and the understanding that you get at the end of it, gosh, there was so much encapsulated in that one little equation. And I think that's what I mean when I say elegant. Mm-hmm. Like When I see an equation, it's not entirely obvious right away what all potential things it could help me understand. But as you play with it and you understand it, you um, derive it, Mm -hmm. you push it to the limit. You say, oh, what happens if this term goes to zero or that asymptotes? Then you kind of understand it. Then you look, you understand the information content that was in that little equation that you could not have foreseen. And that is elegant. That is just beautiful. There's there's so much information Mm. in that equation that you did not see right away, that you could not see right away. Without actually playing with it, mm-hmm. so if I asked you to describe, you know, to to lay
0: people to non scientists, um, and obviously this involves simplification, but the the work that you do now that um, from which you take in some sense, from which which has uh, some legacy from the work of Albert mm-hmm. Einstein, how would you describe that?
1: <clears throat> sure. Um, so much of the work. Um, that I do. So I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, which means that I don't actually make observations of the sky, Mm -hmm. but I actually interpret the data and I make theories. So one of the fields that I work in is gravitational lensing, which is the bending of light (coughs) due to the presence of mass concentrations along the line of sight to us from a distant object. So you could have a star, a quasar, or a galaxy, which is very far away from us, and you have some mass concentration, and this mass can be either another star, another galaxy, a cluster of galaxies. And the light from the object that's behind this screen, which is the mass that's going to do the lensing, um, is seen as distorted to us. The light rays are deflected as they arrive at us because of the presence of this mass and this effect this gravitational bending of light was predicted by einstein and in fact he calculated how much the bending should be and if it was observable hmm. and he was the first person who calculated that you know there's a very simple instance so normally this bending is not very appreciable you have to be these objects have to be quite far away from us for that bending angle to be measurable by us just because of the astronomical distances the way things work out mm-hmm. But Einstein was able to show in 1915 that when you have a total solar eclipse, so the Earth, the sun are lined up, and say you have a star that's behind the sun, so you have the Earth, the sun, and the star kind of lined up, then if you see the position of the star at that time and then you wait for the eclipse to be over so the sun is no longer lined up, you would see the same star at a different position. And that is due to the fact that the curvature in space, due to the sun's gravity, bends the light coming from a distant star. And it causes it to be measured at a different position than its actual position. So he predicted what this difference in position would be for Earth and the sun. And
0: that's what was confirmed by the by the Expedition eclipse of Eddington. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah, in mm-hmm. 1917,
1: they went to South Africa, right. which was a place where you could see the total eclipse, right. and they confirmed it. And the interesting thing about this deflection is that you know Newton and Laplace actually suspected it. Hmm. But of course, they had a very different description of light. Light was conventional optics, right. it was waves. So it didn't make sense they, to them? It, they, it, no, well, they got it off by a factor of two. Oh. So um, you need to have general relativity, need to understand the curvature, you know the connection between mass and the effect it has on space-time. The fact that mass tells space how to curve, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you need to know that fundamentally to be able to calculate it correctly. And what is interesting is Soldner in 1804, in fact, calculated this deflection angle mm. off by a factor of two. So Einstein came along and made this very crucial, I mean, and it was beyond just getting it numerically right to a factor of two, right? It was a fundamentally different conception of space-time.
0: Right.
1: Which just didn't exist in, in the 1800s. So my work involves utilizing this deflection of light on very, very large scales in the universe, well beyond our solar system, well outside our galaxy, and use this as a way to map dark matter in the universe. Because any kind of matter is going to cause this deflection it just has to be matter to cause the deflection
0: And I've read a, um, a, a bit about the work you do and including a piece that you wrote with an uh, another person in which was uh, in discover which was accessible right. not an academic a scientific article and right. you know you're writing about cold dark matter <laughs> right just right. <which> sounds so <laughs> mysterious in itself but right. you know and the, and the fact that um 90 up to 96% of the cosmos cannot be seen through any telescope there's this intriguing Absolutely. line in that article the essential is invisible to the eyes
1: <laughs> right yes <laughs>
0: <clears throat> i wonder um you know einstein was not religious in any in any kind of traditional orthodox sense but he did he did often refer you know half seriously to the mind of god wanting to know what god was thinking and and he also used mm-hmm. this term that, that he had a kind of cosmic religious sensibility and i i couldn't help but hear echoes of that um as i read your description of what you're discovering as an astrophysicist mm-hmm
1: and i haven't you yeah, respond I
0: mean,
1: then <laughs> yeah, i think um, i think it is true from what i have read about einstein that he his relationship to religion was definitely not a conventional one mm-hmm. and i think what i understand about him and this is of course colored possibly my own understanding of my religion and my um, relationship to it mm-hmm. i'm not a religious person but having grown up in an environment yeah. uh, hindu Brahminical culture it's Part of my cultural identity, and I possibly having read about Einstein, I see that it was probably much the same for him in the sense that he had a strong sense of Jewish identity, yes, of um, belonging, um, although he didn't subscribe to all the religious uh, rituals and you know expectations of the organized religion. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, him, I find him quite intriguing in one respect, in the sense that. You know, he had a very s- strong sense of social justice yes, <laughs> and just causes and commitment to those causes without, you know, and, and in his own words, I think he said somewhere that he never felt the need to connect to individual human beings in his life. Mm-hmm. And so there was, while there wasn't this sort of need to connect to humans on a one to one basis, you know, he was not very good with human relationships, right. at least that's what one his gathers. Especially closest, Yes. Yes, um, but somehow he had a sense of humanity, in a sense, you know, he had the big picture in mind and didn't care so much about the, uh, you know, the day-to-day interactions he had uh, and transactions, you know, in human relationships that mm-hmm. you have. So I find that quite intriguing about him. And I think people like me are not as cut off <laughs> in the <laughs> sense, I think, you know, human relationships matter a lot. Right. And... Um, I know, although one has a sense of social justice, and I I mean, I I brought that in because I think the perhaps it is his sense of religious ethics, yes, which were Jewish ethics, that informed his, you know, sensibility in terms of uh, wanting sort of social justice. And, and fighting for it. And
0: did, did, were you aware, growing up in India, of his relationship? I mean, he never met Mahatma Gandhi, but he did have a correspondence with him and uh, apparently had Gandhi's picture on the wall of his home in Princeton along with three others, including Isaac Newton. <laughs> right. Was oh, that, I, I mean, was that relationship of Einstein and Gandhi anything that came down to you Um in No, India? I'm afraid. Yeah. Not really. Yeah.
1: Except that... Uh, I suspected that he was definitely influenced because, you know, Gandhi was a very, very um, militant pacifist, yes. which is an absolutely <laughs> oxymoronic way to say it. But, mm-hmm. And given that that was Einstein's stance, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it makes sense that, you know, given that they were of the same generation, that they um, were influenced and well, That Einstein was influenced by Gandhi. N-
0: let me ask you this: You know, before we be- began our conversation in mm-hmm. another context, you talked about yourself as a person who has a nonviolent sensibility, right? <laughs> and and I wonder if um, you know to what extent that you, you think you draw that from from your from Hindu culture, the Hindu culture in which you grew up, and and also does that find resonance you know for einstein there was a resonance i think um between his scientific values his sense of the cosmos and and the and as you said this the way he valued humanity his kind of actions mm-hmm. in the world and i wonder if you experience anything like that
1: yeah i mean i guess my um my own beliefs i mean i i am a pacifist i have um, you know i i'm not not very happy with the way the world is and the, lose of, and the use of violence. Um, and as I said, uh, you know, in our earlier conversation, I'm really unhappy at the media and how it's making us become so inured to violent images and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of that um, does have to do with my upbringing. Uh, part of it is personality as well. Mm-hmm. I'm an idealist still. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, okay. and I um well, you know, it's it's very hard to sort of separate religion, culture, and milieu. Mm-hmm. And by milieu, I mean, you know, the particulars of the family that you grew up in. So, I mean, I grew up in a very intellectual family, um, very um, thoughtful people who, uh, you know, everything was discussed, you know, sort of ad nauseum, actually, mostly. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, politics, I mean, everything that was happening in the world, you know, we we're very aware of our place in the world. And growing up, you know, privileged in a country like India, you're always aware right. of um, how fortunate you were by just accident of birth to be where you were and so on. So I think all of those things kind of contributed. I I couldn't say in particular it was just religion or it was just culture or this, but it was just this combination of things. That you grow up very you grow up very sensitized Mm -hmm. and very sensitive to everything around you. And in terms of how it influences my work, I mean I I would think that, you know, I'm at a very, very early stage in my career, and I really haven't done um, anything grand yet. So, you know, I'm on my way, but <laughs> nothing yeah. grand. So it's a little early to sit and do sort of retrospective analyses. But I can definitely tell you that the kinds of questions that interest me in science, I can see that that is a product of who I am, what I choose to work on, mm-hmm. and and how I choose to approach it. So one of the sort of strengths of my kind of work um, in gravitational lensing studies is that you know, I'm, I'm a person who does synthesis, who tries to bring in sort of different threads that seem to be unrelated at first. So for example, using gravitational lensing to probe the properties of dark matter, how it's distributed, how much there is, but you know, I've sort of gone beyond to say, okay, can I actually say something about the nature of dark matter itself? Can mm-hmm. I actually push it in that direction? And that's not a direction in which people conventionally thought that this work could go. So I think the the desire to kind of synthesize and to find connections and to put things together in that way, rather than to deconstruct and you know, in detailed fashion, right. which is you know another style, scientific style. I don't belong to that sort of style. I belong to the synthetic style, mm-hmm. and some of that is who I am, and some of that is my training. I did my PhD at the University of Cambridge in England, where I worked under one of the most amazing minds of this generation. Uh, I worked with Professor Sir Martin Rees. Okay. Uh, and that is his style, and I went there actually, to work with him because it that was what I liked about his style. It's a synthetic style, a style where you try to put things together. Um, but you know, I was attracted to that kind of those kinds of questions where you could do that. And I think that is uh, definitely informed by who I am and how I was brought up and so on and so forth. And I think that would be a kindred
0: style to Einstein. I know I remember Freeman Dyson called him a great one of the great unifiers in science. It's a little bit different than synthesizing, but still right. the impulse is um in the same direction, I suppose
1: Yeah, and I think he um was working, you know, at sort of a a, a different level. Yeah. At you know, the time that Science as it's done today is very, very different Mm -hmm. from even 20, 30 years ago, both in terms of the intellectual style and the content and the problems that remain. I mean, physics and astrophysics are very mature. A lot has really been done. A lot of the fundamental work has been done. And, for example, astrophysics has really moved away from being sort of a theoretical field to being completely driven by observations at the moment. So for instance uh, 20 years ago you could write a paper when you saw there was an extreme phenomenon in the universe you had a highly energetic event you could write five papers saying it could be this it could be that it could be you know it could be a neutron star it could be a black hole it could be this and so on and you didn't have to worry about it. I mean, you had five different papers. It didn't matter that they contradicted each other. And I think that's another aspect that you see in Einstein's work. You know, you can oh, right. you could hold lots of different ideas that were not necessarily consistent with each other, but each idea had, a you know, had a story that would hold. Hmm. And now that's changed because the you see an extreme phenomenon. Um, you know, you. The models are ruled out very, very swiftly. So there would be an obs- there are observations. Uh, if I r- If I write come up with a model, this model can now be proved or disproved within two years. So, you know, I, I mean, that's how fast, you know, technology different. has allowed us, uh, allowed yes. us really. So in some sense, the theorists, the kind of theoretical work you could do before has changed fundamentally. And because now you cannot, you know, keep many different ideas in your head which are um, and you know have them out there because they're not going to survive all that long right you could but they're not going to survive all that long and also the parameter space of where you can build models and how you could you know um, make a story that parameter space is very restricted because observations have are kind of mapping it all out and so you have very strong constraints Hmm. now if you want to come up with a new theory. And also the doing of science has become more of a big science, sort of large number of people kind of project, where one person, it's hard for one person, I don't think it's impossible, but it's very hard for one person to be very influential now. Okay.
0: You know, Einstein uh, often spoke about mystery, a regard for mystery, um, as something that, that was similar a similar impulse in religion and in science, and mm-hmm. and he would say that to the extent that he that he had a, a, that he acknowledged mystery and kind of relished it, <laughs> that, you right. know, to that extent and only in that way would he could he perhaps be called a religious person. Um, how does that statement strike you in terms of your work and your the way you kind of reflect on what you learn and experience as a scientist?
1: Well, I mean, I think the um, there is definitely the element of mystery. Whether you want to attribute that to um, sort of some kind of religion or some kind of curiosity, there's a natural sense of curiosity that a child has. Um, a child who's uh, as yet, you know, not exposed to any religious beliefs um, has that sense of wonderment. Mm-hmm and i think that that sense of wonderment of having figured something out uh being curious tinkering with it whether be it an idea or you know a piece of equipment or whatever and then figuring it out gives you a sense of um having solved something you know it's a i think it really does empower you mm-hmm. so i mean i think the whether you attribute it to religion or not you know i'm not sure whether einstein if he were here would actually agree to um, the assessment that his sense of mystery was linked to the kind of sense of mystery that is in religion. But I'm no, not sure. I think when he, he was 11, yeah. he would, right? Mm-hmm. When he was 11, he probably did. Mm-hmm. But I think it was, wasn't it when he was 12 that he had this... Um, right. Rejection. No, he saw. He mm-hmm.
0: felt that the sense of mystery in religion often was linked to fear and other impulses that didn't interest right. him. But, but that he mm-hmm. that there was something he experienced as a scientist that. Um,
1: oh, absolutely! Yeah. Oh, no, I. Agree that was with at a, that, in actually. a different,
0: in a very different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I can't help but thinking with his with his, as you noted his um, his strong sense of humanity of sort of the whole of humanity. Which mm-hmm. did manifest itself in in um, social actions of social justice and solidarity with all kinds of you know political prisoners in Europe, and then with African Americans when he was in this country. Um, with his with his great um, admiration for a figure like Mahatma Gandhi, mm-hmm. um, I can't help but thinking that he would be excited by some of the ways the world has progressed and probably dismayed by others, but, um, you know, by the Internet and by by many of the manifestations of globalization and the fact that you, growing up in India... You know, that the the, the the scientific community, I suppose it was always international, but, but you know, it is that now, too, a very...
1: Right. I mean, I think one of the things that he would be very happy about as well uh, is the fact that even in the confines of institutionalized science in universities and research laboratories and so on, hmm. there is now a lot more freedom in terms of intellectual styles, hmm. which, you know, in his early stage, um, you know, I remember reading that he was very unhappy at the kind of coursework he had to do. Yes. It was really, <laughs> I was, you know, and it's just that things have now, ch- the educational systems and, this, um, and the learning of how to do science ha- uh, tolerates many different approaches now. So there are a lot of different ways. I mean, there are people, for example, like Ed Witten, who's one of the most eminent scientists of our times, who didn't even have a bachelor's degree in science. Hmm. He did philosophy. Hmm. And he is um, one of the um, most insightful mathematical physicists of our times. So I think, you know, things like that have really changed. So the establishment is much more open in that sense, open, as you said, to not just, you know, to people from all over the world, but also a lot of different pathways of getting to do science. And I think that's something he would have really appreciated Mm -hmm. Uh, because his... um, from what I've read during his early stages, the curriculum and what the expectations were and the training were just very, very rigid. He couldn't choose the subjects well, like he really wanted to study. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think he would be very proud of that too. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, is there anything I haven't asked you about that intrigues you about Einsteiner that you'd want to say, just from your perspective, about him, his legacy, and particularly his le- legacy of ethics?
1: Um, I mean, I think I would I, I would, I am just curious, as I said, about, you know, trying to understand, you know, even as a scientist, um, he held a lot of contradictory views in his head. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they were contradictory in the sense, I mean, they were not, um, they were just, they were incompatible views and so for example you know he thought of photon as a quantum packet then he thought of it as a wave at the same time writing sort of two different sets of papers a few years apart and you know those views are not entirely compatible but somehow he held them in his head so while I can understand as a scientist he was able to do that and that that was probably one of his strengths Um, I must admit that I haven't quite been able to unravel his you know this the fact that he was able to think of the good of humanity in a very solid committed way um and somehow in his own sort of personal relationships Mm. um you know i think he said somewhere that you know he really didn't feel the need to um, connect to individuals and that's something i find quite intriguing mm-hmm. you know and I have a quote here from him that says my passionate sense for social justice and social responsibility has always been in a in a peculiar opposition to my distinct lack of the need to connect with humans or hum, human communities I find that very enigmatic right? <laughs> right. Um, and I think you know when he felt like he was a stranger among humans in some ways and my impression is that he had a yearning for solitude and was sort of, you know, socially withdrawn, almost. Right. And, however, he was just so committed, so he had a very strong sense of belonging to a larger group, which is humanity, and I just find that um, very, very hard to, and as I said, scientifically, I can see how you could have these contradictions, you know, about theories and ideas. But somehow in life, I just um, I find this very enigmatic about way right. but, but there is a parallel, isn't there, in in
0: the in mm. in, in hi, hi, to his scientific to his approach to science, uh, which that that part of it intrigues me as well. I mean, you you pointed mm-hmm. that out, and that I mean, that struck me. I mean, that he was al- also, and I don't know if I'm stretching this. I've kind of run this by other people, and they're not sure mm-hmm. if I'm right, and I may not be right. But in in the way he was, <coughs> he remained fixated on you know, that grand sta- scale of physics of the structure of space and time and gravity and light and and, and then didn't have a lot of, it didn't have a great attention span um, near the end of his life for, for the kind of details of quantum physics. You know, that
1: right, <laughs> and I think, yeah, yeah, that's right. And in fact, I think he never quite bought quantum mechanics no. completely. Right. He was very uncomfortable uh, with it. And I think, uh, as you said correctly, he really was in search of a grander, more unified sort of theory. And um, and he refused to really sort of buy quantum mechanics, even though the evidence was very compelling. And um, I think till the end of his life, he remained skeptical Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And I think some of it is the he probably had a discomfort with the idea. I I know that, you know, it's... um, it's documented that he had a lot of discomfort with the idea of measurement in quantum mechanics mm-hmm. and the fact that you know there are probabilities and when you make a measurement, you have something like a wave function which collapses and that's why you make a measurement and you mm. make a measurement with some probability. And that is something that he found very unacceptable. And I don't think that was because he was fundamentally a classical physicist. I mean, clearly not, mm-hmm. but... Um, and I don't know why it was, um, you know, he's always held, as we mentioned earlier, contradictory worldviews in his head. Yeah. And the fact that the quantum mechanical worldview is not intuitive. I mean, it's not, um, it's not easy for us because it doesn't pertain to our day-to-day experience. It's We're kind not of chaotic. Co- yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, it's one of those mysteries as to why that particular one <laughs> mm-hmm. he was unable to make room for. Right till the very end i guess the one other um question um i've always been curious about is also trying to understand you know which i brought this up a little earlier the idea of identity hmm. you know how for scientists and einstein in particular how you know their sense of identity and how it's very complicated a lot of your identity is formed by the culture that you grew up in The religion, your family, and all of that. It would be quite interesting to sort of see if this mixture of what feeds into your sense of identity is somehow very different for people who are engaged in science.
0: Is that something that you believe or have observed yourself?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I find it curious because um, I do um, meet a lot of scientists, most of whom are not particularly religious, however would identify themselves definitely as um, you know jewish if it turns out to be mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and so I, I mean i find that quite intriguing and i remember reading this very interesting book in which i think it was alan lightman and roberta bauer um, interviewed cosmologists uh, i think they interviewed about 10 or 20 cosmologists and asked everybody the same questions and these people were drawn from completely different backgrounds. And there was always, you know, and it was very, very interesting. Almost none of them uh, claimed to have a serious religious af- affiliation, i.e. went to church or temple or whatever. Right. However, you could see that it was part of their identity somehow. When huh. you push them and you ask them, why are you doing what you did and how did this start and everything, uh, you know, your interest in the subject, you could always see that it was this complicated thing about, you know, their identity, which clearly fed into <laughs> who they were. So I'm just very curious as to what it is about, as you said, maybe it's something about the ethics of religion or the spirituality of religion. I know it mm-hmm. sounds really um, new agey, but there's something about or oh, the spiritual impulse, um, human, impulse. the human yeah. spiritual impulse. impulse, mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. D- doesn't necessarily have to be rooted in any particular religious um, strand. Uh, seems to be important for scientists as well. I mean, it's not surprising that identity is very, very fundamental. Yeah. But I mean, in Einstein's case, um, what was interesting was that he fled from Germany um, and he had very strong political convictions. He came to America fought for you know was very pro-israel but was also critical of israel um yeah when you know when he was unhappy with the policies he was he was very articulate about his criticism mm-hmm. on the other hand he was also very unhappy about german science mm-hmm. getting a bad name mm-hmm. and the scientists right i mean so he it's he had a very complicated sense of identity and mm-hmm. i think that's what's very interesting about him is that while he was, you know, he fled from Germany and didn't go to Israel, he could have gone there and settled down there, but he didn't. Uh, Even when he had, of course, he had the option, uh, he had the option of uh, possibly becoming the prime minister and he didn't. Um, But I think he really did feel that German science got a bad name and he was unhappy about that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah. Go on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I think
1: it's (laughs) that I think it's very, very intriguing. uh, You know, when I said the parts of uh, the parts that constitute one's sense of identity, it's you know, he was German (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) identified, Jewish identified, Mm -hmm. um, yet American identified, uh, you know, the American ideals of freedom and all of that identified as well as um a person who thought of himself you know at a at a global level yeah, and even a cosmic level i mean he <laughs> yeah exactly and then the cosmic <laughs> the sense level of the so mo- yes yeah i mean and i i haven't really read anything about wh- what einstein's thoughts were on possibility of life on other planets and so on and so forth yeah i haven't no, done i that. don't really yeah I'm i i haven't sure found anything really um, um
0: the i I think you know what you're describing. Also, is a is a very modern tension, or maybe it's a tension we're increasingly aware of: of the, the tension between identity and and uh, and and the global um, and the and globalization or the, mm-hmm. I mean, an interdependent and m- mobile world that is completely linked by technology.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but. But that identity somehow doesn't become—it doesn't become unimportant in that in, in this new world. Uh, and and I think maybe that's counterintuitive even for those of us who are experiencing that to be true.
1: Mm-hmm. No, no, I totally agree, and mm-hmm. um, and I see that in myself. That you know, while I do see myself as you know a citizen of the world, um, as and as you say, very mobile and so on. And you've lived in several Dest- countries. And, countries and, yeah. exactly, and. But still, there's there's a link to India mm-hmm. that um, that I can't even quite say what it is anymore because you know I don't actually live there and I go there twice a year. My family is there, but there's a way. Of, there's a fundamental way in which I am Indian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's um, although you know I do not. Um, I do not participate politically in India. I don't vote, for example. I'm not registered to vote there. Uh, I'm still a citizen there, Um, and you know I'm not involved in the the in the sort of the the day-to-day culture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not aware of exactly what's going on, for instance. And you know I don't wear Indian clothes. Um, I um, I'm very westernized. However. There's, I'm still Indian, and that's very primary part of my identity. Well, let me ask you this: Is there a, is there a corollary in
0: in physics, in um, you know, in in Einstein's in the in the way Einstein helped all the rest of us think about the way the world works, where the cosmos works? Is there a corollary mm. between this human experience of identity, um, of particularity, and also um, Belonging to the whole in physics, in this kind of physics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're alluding to the idea of sort of unification, um, yeah, I think there is in the sense that you know, there's um, there are our many selves, <laughs> which um, have to unify and make up who we are mm-hmm. and. Uh, and in that sense, yes, there's some sort of analogy between sort of the sense of um, you know the grand scale and the cosmos and how things really have to be are unified and they have to make sense. Yeah, I guess there is something there. <laughs> is I don't feel particularly articulate on
0: the spot about this, but um,
1: yeah.
0: I'm kind of asking you to wing it too, and it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, say a little bit more about, about what it would be and how would the, what would the corollary be in physics in terms of the... Is there a corollary to the many selves, um, this idea?
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't want to use the word many selves quite because there mm-hmm. is a very precise connotation in quantum mechanics. You know, there's the many worlds interpretation, and that's not where I want to go. Okay. Uh, uh, the... The argument that uh, I'm making is one in which there uh, is a need to integrate the various views that one has of the universe. Mm -hmm. So to give a really, um, a much more sort of black and white example, for example, um, in astrophysics, you can view an object, for example, a galaxy. You can see it in the infrared wavelength. You could see it in the visible wavelength. You could see it in the Mm -hmm. X-rays. In the end, it's one object. So you have many different views of this object, but they have to be actually put together. You know, they they are the same object. Mm -hmm. And so the object might appear. So for example, if you look at our galaxy in the infrared versus the X-ray versus the optical, you get completely different views. So, and you see very, very different features because each of these wavelengths picks out very specific things. So one wavelength would, for example, pick out the very, very dusty regions of our galaxy and the visible would actually not pick up any of that by definition because of the extinction by dust so in the end you actually have to put all these views together put all this information together to try and understand the composition of our galaxy where the new stars are where the stars forming where are the old stars so in that sense um in a lot of you know it's a it's a more it's a mundane example but it's just an attempt to explain that there are many different windows to seeing the same thing. It's, to seeing it's, the same it's thing. It's really
0: fascinating. I mean, I think
1: that we're really onto something
0: here. And right, so, again, I, I'm, and I'm kind of circling back to something we've already touched sure. on in different ways, but, you know, Einstein spoke of his cosmic religious sensibility that that he drew from his science that also, I think, affected, it was kind of a cosmic ethic, um, ethical sensibility. And what I want to ask you is, you know, do you think you you... Live in the world differently and act differently because you observe this in the cosmos.
1: Ooh, that's how, did, a, how does it affect your way of, sort like, of
0: seeing life and seeing yourself as a, as an actor? In
1: well, I mean, I guess um, in a way, I I, I definitely think that um, working and thinking about things. Um, At the cosmic level, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that does attract me about cosmology Mm -hmm. uh, is the fact that it gives me a way to escape (laughs) this world. Okay. Right? (laughs) It gives me, uh, uh, I don't like the world the way it is. And there, there, there are sort of very limited ways in which I can actually change it, you know, mm-hmm. by engaging locally, politically, socially, and so on. So I find that my work is really an escape because it gets me away from what I think is the rigmarole of the mundane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the um, and I really see it as a form of escapism. Okay. Um, my um, my work, uh, and I think. A lot of scientists do see that, see their work that way, especially people who work in cosmology, just the kind of scales. And I think it's not out of any kind of arrogance. It's just out of the fact that you constantly get comfortable dealing with you know, length scales, time, um, time scales, that you absolutely cannot have any physical sense for. So the kinds of objects that I think about, the distances they're at, they're gigaparsecs away. Hmm. that's about you know 10 to the 28 29 centimeters away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and their scales you know are also huge and it's it's something that you know I can't I can't think of a ruler and I, I mean I just can't have a physical sense of comprehension about them I just have to get comfortable with that and in order to do that you really have to give up the notion of you know having a little you know being able to make measurements the way we conventionally make them by picking up a ruler or you know taking a little clock or whatever you know i'm talking about i'm always thinking about you know something when i'm making a calculation and i find that a process takes 10 million years oh that's fast i mean and who would ever think 10 million years was quick because you know in contrast to any other time scale in the universe which is a billion of years, billions of years, 10 million years is short.
0: But it does give so, you, you know, a different way of thinking well, about your
1: life, too. Absolutely. I mean, I think it gives you... Um, I, I, I'm still trapped, right? I mean, I would like to think that just, you know, having these uh, sort of dealing with these skills would allow me to transcend, you know, all the <laughs> pettinesses. and uh, But it doesn't, of course, you know, yeah. I, I try. Yeah. <laughs> but it definitely... Um, Gives you a very, very different perspective on what is important, and I think one of the things that cosmology, working in cosmology, has definitely taught me—if I, you know, I knew it already always—is how insignificant we really are and our lifespans, mm-hmm. and how much damage we're capable of doing to the Earth, and you know, given the short, given the really insignificant lifespan mm. that we as humans have—you know, it's less than a hundred years. And how we can really mess up the planet and we could do so much damage in such a short time scale right. and you realize that I mean I do realize um, you know how insi- insignificant we really are that's very humbling and that's so you know it's kind of frustrating because you see that we are, we are here it's a mere snapshot in terms of the universe right. and its fate and but we are still capable of doing so much damage. Mm-hmm.
0: There, at the end of my um, interview with Paul Davies, who's worked a lot on Einstein's view of time, um, mm-hmm. and the, the kind of physicist view. Oh, he's of, a fantastic mono- writer. Yeah, yeah, he's a fantastic writer, and he, you know, he, we were talking about how. <clears throat> so on the one hand, it's it, we have our lifespan is so so minuscule seen f- from a cosmic perspective, but then on the other hand, you know, he, he was saying that. There, there's a sense of eternity, in in the sense that um, it's everything is kind of all happening at once, and mm-hmm. and and we make our imprint on the universe and don't ever completely go away, right? And I'm right. not saying that very well, but it's it's quite mysterious. So it's it's both mm-hmm. things. It's what you're saying, and also the fact that
1: oh yeah, you leave a lasting impression, even mm-hmm. though mm-hmm. you're there for a little poof, right? Right. Uh. Uh, Oh, this is also fascinating. Yeah, and then I think, of course, the fact that you know the flip side of um, you know us being around and ruining the planet and so on and so forth is the flip side is also that you know we are here and we're in a position we just happen to be. Um, I think in a lucky place at a lucky time, <laughs> and uh, you know we have the capability to look for life on other planets. Mm-hmm. And you know things, projects that were inconceivable even say fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. That you know, I don't think anybody um, ever thought that we would find so many planets around other stars, right? As we have recently, and that I think is fascinating. And in that sense, you know, we're going to leave a lasting imprint hmm. that we have. We are capable of so much now. Okay.
0: Well. I think this is great. I want to ask behind the glass if they have any questions they want me to ask you. <coughs> I can't hear you. Okay. All right. We're having trouble communicating, but we're we're okay. done. Um, this is wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, I don't know. Was it useful at all? I don't really. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you know,
0: this is a big project, and we have we'll have an extensive website as well as the radio. And I don't exactly know um, (coughs) where this will be. And uh, you know, certainly everything is shorter on air, and then there will be there'll be lots lots on the website. And we will, um, Colleen, will stay in touch with you, and we'll send you a CD and let let you know when it's going to be on the air. In fact, we we know that Mm. um, the first program, Einstein's God, will be what is it, December eighth, the second. That second Sunday in... um, Oh, okay. We're almost done with that one, and then we'll be pulling together Mm -hmm. this second show, and that will be later the next weekend. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much. It was delightful speaking with you. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.